Well, as you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 7, I just want to remind you that this is part two of our series on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. What we want to do is uh, have a, a, a biblical understanding of what is happening. And so we need to take a look at the past, take a look at the present, and also take a look at uh, the prophetic future. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show them no favor. So this was the instructions that God gave the Israelites after they left Egypt to go to take the land, the promised land, that God had, had uh, deemed to them. Now keep in mind, there are other nations that are in the land. And God instructs them, that they're to go in, to militarily defeat them, to utterly, completely destroy them, and to make no peace with them, no covenant, uh, and to show no favor. Continuing, verse 3, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Why would God give an instruction to utterly destroy, to not intermarry, uh, to not coexist? Verse, verse 4. Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. And, and so you see the reason. The reason why they have to utterly be destroyed is because they worship other gods. And what they will do if they intermarry is they will lead your family astray. They will lead your sons and daughters uh, to following other gods. Verse 5. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. Why? For God, for, I'm sorry, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples. Um, in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept his oath, which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you for a from a house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now keep in mind, again, in Deuteronomy, Egypt has just served 400 years of slavery. And the most powerful uh, king, the most powerful country on the face of the earth was Egypt, and God delivers Israel out of their hand. And so he reminds them that they weren't chosen because they were more spiritual, because they were, you know, a, a, an amazing, you know, country. No, they were small. They were fewest. 
Verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God. There is one and only God, and besides Him, there is no other. We see that in Deuteronomy 6. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with those who hate him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. And so we go back to Deuteronomy 7 because we, we see the beginning of the history of the, the, the not only the separation of the land of Israel, we see who is the true and proper owner, the, the deed holder, and that's God. And we see that God himself is the one who has given instructions for Israel uh, to be the possessors of the land, that Israel will have to remove other countries. So it's not a matter of who was first. It's not a matter of who has had the most people there. It's not a matter of who the most powerful is. That, that, that's never in contention. But the fact is that there are other nations and other countries and they're going to want to fight and they're going to want to battle. And, and what we'll see through time is the battle is not just against the nation of Israel, but it's actually against God. And it's clearly against God's will because God's will is that Israel and through the Abrahamic promise that we see in Deuteronomy 7 repeated, that that promise is from generation to generation. It's never ending. And so we see clearly that God has chosen Abraham, chosen Isaac, chosen Jacob to be the, the, uh, the family that has been, been picked, the family of choice by God. Now, the flip side of that is that means that uh, while God did choose Abraham, God didn't choose Abraham's son Ishmael, and he didn't choose uh, you know, Isaac's other son Esau. And so they are not uh, the chosen ones. And in fact, you could call them the black sheep of the family. Now, as we're kind of combining the, the past history and understanding the, the conflict that's, take, that's taking place today, one of the things that we're hearing is this term, you know, genocide. Uh, that's the, you'll primarily hear the Palestinians are saying that Israel, the current nation of Israel, is trying to genocide uh, the Palestinians. Now, keep in mind, what, what is genocide anyway? The, the idea of genocide is an aim to destroy uh, a group, a, a people. Genocide isn't one nation going to war against another nation. I mean, that's what war is. And, and the goal of war usually isn't to completely, utterly destroy the other country. Um, we've seen genocide in, the, in, in an attempt to genocide. We also see where Satan is intricately involved in this conflict and has been from the beginning. Um, Satan's involved with, with Pharaoh. He's involved with trying to destroy and genocide uh, really Israel through Moses when he was a baby and having all the, the midwives, you know, kill the babies. We see Haman Another example in, in the book of Esther where Haman has a plot to utterly destroy the Israelites. And then we, we recently just studied 
in the life of Jesus and, and looking at, at John the Baptist that Herod, in an attempt to, to kill and the Messiah to kill Jesus, uh, killed all the babies from two years down. And so what we see here is, 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 is Satan in, in his plot to, to win, in his plot to destroy the Messiah, to his plot to, to stop God from redeeming uh, mankind, He's never going to stop. In fact, he will go to great lengths to, um, uh, to win the battle. We see in Revelation 20, in fact, that so, so in, in Deuteronomy 7, we're, we're really seeing the beginning. But in Revelation 20, we're, we're, we see the end. And what do we see in the end? What do we see the, the end goal of Satan to truly be? Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. Who's the dragon? Who's the serpent of old? Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. I love when the Bible just, you know, wraps it all up in, a, in one sentence. And, and so uh, that makes it tidy. So the serpent of old, that serpent in the garden with Eve, uh, the dragon that you see portrayed throughout Revelation, is the devil is satan and he's going to be bound so so right now we live in 2023 and we are looking forward to the time where satan will be bound but that that's going to be for a thousand years okay so we'll be long gone uh, verse three and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer it's really important for us to understand that Satan, since the beginning, since the garden, the serpent of old, has always at the forefront been a deceiver. He always distorts the truth. He always deceives people. He also deceives nations. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in modern day is we're seeing the national plot against Israel from other nations. And who is their master? Well, that would be the devil. So until the thousand years were completed and after these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and did not receive the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection over the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God, of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, Verse 7, and when the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from prison and will come out. And what will Satan do? After a thousand years of thinking about who he is and who God is and the power of God and the power of God to bind him and the power of God to defeat him, what does Satan come out of, of this imprisonment for a thousand years? What does he do? Verse 8, to deceive the nations. Nothing changes with Satan. Satan is always a deceiver. Satan is always a murderer. Satan loves murder. Satan is the one 
who loves genocide. He doesn't care which side. He loves death. This is part of the reason why abortion becomes such such a, a tactic of Satan. Because you're talking about millions of unborn babies being destroyed. Well, verse 8, And he'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so we see that in this this, uh, storyline, that that Satan is an integral piece of that, and that his goal is to use and deceive nations. But but here's something to, to think about and consider. He will never stop. He'll never stop. And that's really one of the themes that we see in the history of Israel and, and Israel's enemies throughout time is that the enemies never stop. The enemies never stop. They never give up. And so we're looking at this timeline of history as we're studying Abraham, as we're studying Ishmael, and as we're looking at Esau and then understanding who the Palestinians are in that kind of family tree. And, and, and so as, as we look at this, just taking a step back, thinking, resetting, and, and thinking about modern times here, okay? Let's understand Israel's State of the Union. Uh, Israel uh, has turned to foreign idols. They have uh, been unequally yoked. They have intermarried with foreign gods. They are not participating uh, nationally in the sacrifices. Uh, they do not follow. In fact, they rejected the Messiah. Uh, and so as Deuteronomy 7.3 says, they, they've allowed their sons to been, be turned away to other gods. In fact, one of the things that the Muslim nations that surround them in Israel so despised is how secular and how liberal um, Israel is. And, and one of those areas is, and, and this isn't the worst area, it's just an example, but in one of those areas, Israel is, is very pro-homosexual. You know, They're very pro, you know, uh, as far as a, you know, uh, a, 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 a allowing their, their sexual desires to, to, you know, be just like it would in America. This is supposed to be uh, the nation of Israel who's following God, and yet they're not. And so they're very despised even by the, the religious Muslims who would consider them completely unholy. Uh, Israel's also participated in many treaties. And, you know, while treaties sound nice, that's not what God told them to do. God told them uh, that it's their land. And so they're not in obedience right now. They're, they're, they're in fact, uh, in rebellion. And we'll take a look at that uh, a little bit later. One of the other things that we need to get our minds wrapped around in this issue is the Palestinians are trying to claim that it's Israel uh, who's actually trying to genocide them. Well, that's really impossible when you think about it. For starters, there's there's 22 Arab nations that are directly around Israel. So the Palestinians could go to any one of those 22 Arab nations except for the fact that those 22 Arab nations will not have them. Uh, but that's beside the point. Uh, the other thing is there's 50 Muslim nations throughout the world. So there's 50 Muslim nations, no Jewish nations. There's tw- or only one Jewish nation, Israel. There's 22 Arab nations. There's only one Israel. 
And so when you hear the chant from the river to the sea, they only have one goal, and their one goal is to completely, 100% eliminate Israel. Um, well, that's genocide. In fact, the truth is that in the nation of Israel right now, they have Arabs in their government. They have Arabs who live peacefully uh, within the Israeli borders. And so uh, you will find that the if there's racism here, that it's very, very one-sided and it's uh, positive for Israel and, and, and not the Palestinians, that they're really the ones that um, are, are, are more one race minded. And uh, we also look at kind of the issue that we, we keep hearing about is that, well, Gaza is just a kind of a, a form of, of, of a prison or an occupation. Uh, but the truth is, the Palestinian people, they're not a state, they're not a country, the Palestinian people who are within uh, the territory of the land of Israel, they have chosen, they have voted for uh, their political leadership, which is known as Hamas, which is, by definition, which is a terrorist organization. So one of the problems that we have is the people of, of Palestine have voted themselves in terrorists. So you could say, well, it's just a fringe terrorist group, but, but it's not when you're the ones who actually voted them in. Uh, so that's just something for, for us to consider. But more importantly, we need to get our minds wrapped around this. We're not on the side of Israel, and we're not on the side of the Palestinians. We, we should hate death. We should hate war. We should hate any kind of terrorism, any kind of uh, abuse, uh, in any matter, the problem is is that war's brutal, war's vicious, war is deadly. Uh, people die, and there there is um, just death on both sides that are not military. Women and children and old people, and, and and that's why we hate death, and that's why Satan loves it. But we're on the side of Christianity. We want to see Jesus Christ flourish, and so we'll talk about that too. So again, continuing in, that was just a kind of a brief introduction. We're, we're studying the history of Israel and the Palestinian conflict. Uh, this is our second part, and it's now an overview, uh, not only of the, the sons of Ishmael, but we want to look at uh, Esau and the Ishmaelites. Esau and the Ishmaelites, and then hopefully we can get to the Palestinians and the Ishmaelites. Um, remember, history biblical history is history. When we're reading in Deuteronomy, when we're reading in the Old Testament, when we're reading in Genesis, we're actually reading from 3,500 years ago when Moses, who walked the face of the earth, he's the one who was inspired by God and wrote down this historical document, the most accurate historical document ever written on the face of the earth. So if you're an archaeologist today and you want to discover something and you want to know where cities are, you want to know where ancient peoples are, uh, the Bible is your best resource and has always been proven true. One of the questions that uh, Ken Ham always asks regarding evolution is, you can ask this simple question in regards to history. Were you there? Well, Moses was there. Uh, so what a beautiful document we have in the Bible. Last week, um, 
you can have a chance, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 or, or just listen as I fly through here. But Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we were reminded of the Abrahamic covenant. This is God pulling out Abraham from uh, Ur, which is north of Israel. He promises Abraham land. He promises him uh, the seed, which is Jesus. And he promises them a future blessing, not only of his own uh, nation, but also other nations as well. And so that's the Abrahamic covenant that, that establishes really this whole issue. In Genesis 16, uh, 1 through 5, we see that while Abraham and Sarah were, were promised by God to have a child, uh, they lacked a little faith. And Sarah offers Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, uh, to Abram or Abraham to have a baby, to have that firstborn baby. And this is where all the confusion, this is where all the problems start. Because that baby, uh, which is going to be, you know, half Egyptian, half um, uh, Jewish or Israeli, for lack of better terms, at this stage, really they're Hebrews. Um, but Sarah offers Hagar. And in Genesis 16, 11, 12, we see a description of who this child is going to be, a, a prophecy of who this child is going to be. And, and let's see if it sounds like anybody you know. He is going to be, and this nation is going to be, a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, everyone against him, and he'll live from the east. Well, if that doesn't sound like the the Arab clans, and if that doesn't sound like the Muslim nations in the Middle East, then, then I don't know what is. And what an amazing prediction that would come thousands of years ahead of, again, what we would see as the, the, the modern-day Arabs. We also see a, a, a repeat of the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 17 of Genesis, uh, verses 15 through 21, that the covenant is not through Ishmael, but the covenant is through Isaac, and that's really important for us as we um, just kind of put that feather in our cap in the future. Uh, in Genesis 17, uh, verses 20 for 21, we, we see even though Ishmael is not going to be uh, the son of the promise, he is still going to have a blessing, and, and the blessing is he will multiply. He will be the father of 12 princes, and they will be a large nation. And for sure, we have seen that truth to not only come come to fruition in the Old Testament, but modern day times, uh, the Arabs, the Middle East, they have flourished and they are a large nation. And God has kept his promise, um, much like he did with Cain. Uh, when Cain kills his brother Abel, he is still given the mark. He's still given the, the grace and the mercy of the blessing of being able to go and, and have a wife and have a family and have a future. Uh, well, Ishmael's given the same thing. And, and keep in mind, Ishmael grew up with Abraham. Ishmael knew all the sacri sacrifices and uh, he knew the right way. But he chose, again, to intermarry and to combine and follow uh, the ways of the world with the ways of Yahweh. In Genesis 21, we see that uh, when Isaac is born, that Ishmael is driven away and driven out because, you know, Sarah didn't want uh, Ishmael around and, and Hagar around. And, and so it just made sense that, uh, uh, not being the chosen one that Ishmael and Hagar had to go and, and find another place to live and, and be somewhere else. And so in Genesis 25, nine through 17, we see the, 
the tribes or uh, the the sons of Ishmael. And, and really what we're seeing is the, the birth of the Arab nations and the birth of a great family feud of, of biblical proportions. And um, it, it's both spiritual and political. Um, and so it's the beginning of the Arab nations, which springs from Abraham and Ishmael. And then we're going to now look towards uh, Esau and who are the uh, Edomites, you know, and that's from the, the father Esau. And, and where do they come from? And so Esau and the Ishmaelites, uh, this is our, our, our second point in reviewing really who the, the Ishmaelites or, or who the Palestinians are. Uh, first, we see that uh, there's the son Ishmael, and now we see the son Esau. So, turning to Genesis 25, if we look at Genesis 25, um, beginning in verse 19, and we're, we're going to read a lot because, uh, again, the, the Bible is history and biblical history, and this is really our, our, our source of, of, of truth. And so, in Genesis 25, 19, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two nations, the Arab nations and the Israeli nations. And two people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so what we're seeing here is God himself is telling Rebecca who these two babies are in her womb and these babies are Esau and Jacob and the older is going to serve the younger now remember this isn't what God had laid out in the uh in the old testament that the that the firstborn gets the birthright that that's a tradition that the Israelites that the Hebrews had taken from the surrounding countries God never lays this out in fact, what we see uh, throughout Scripture is God's the one who picks and chooses, you know, Abraham to come out of Ur. Ur. It's God who picks and chooses uh, his people. He picks and chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, right? They're not the firstborn. They're not the best, you know, the, the strongest. God picks. And so being the firstborn is just something that we, we see in in the secular regions, but it is a tradition that uh, even the Israelites uphold, and so God has to has to step in at times. Well, we see that God says, "Look, I'm telling you right now that the younger is is going to rule over the the older." Uh, so we see that established in Genesis 25, and then later in Genesis 25:27, again we see how human interaction works with. Uh, or weaves with, with God. So Genesis 25, 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, 
living in the tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So as of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we see the, the kind of the first step of the the older serving the younger. The older has now just given up his birthright for food. Um, somewhat, you know, I guess swindled by by uh, Jacob. Jacob is his brother. He should have just given him food. He didn't have to take his birthright for food. And evidently he was hungry enough that he thought he was going to die, that he traded his birthright for food. Um, and so we see Jacob really taking advantage of the situation. Furthermore, as we move forward into uh, Genesis 27, uh, starting at, at, well, let's start at verse 1. Now, it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said, I am here. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your great your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. And Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two choice kids from there, that I may prepare them a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I shall be as a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. And so we see a, a, a turn in this, this story and plot where not only is the, the younger taking advantage of the, of the older, but we see the mother, the mother of all people is actually now involved in, in the transferring of this uh, blessing. And, and you could only imagine how, how, how Esau will, will end up feeling about this, right? Verse 38 in chapter 27 of Genesis, uh, moving forward, right? And we see that this takes place. We see that this, this um, you know, deception has, has, has won and Abraham gives the blessing. 
uh, to Jacob. And so here's Esau now, verse 38. And Esau says to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. So he lifted his voice and wept. Now you could imagine being Esau and you could imagine being Abraham. Why does Abraham only have to give one blessing? Uh, there's no reason for this. There's no biblical reason. There's no law for this. And so Esau pleads to his father, well, give two blessings. But this is Abraham's response. Verse 39. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. So what we're going to see now is Esau is not going to get a blessing. Instead, he's going to get a curse. And now think about this for a second. Where's the Middle East? What's the terrain of the Middle East? Sand, desert, right? Not a lot of crops there. Look at the curse here. Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. Wow. Now keep in mind, Israel is considered the land of milk and honey. Flowing with milk and honey. And away from the dew of the heaven from above, and by your sword you shall live. And you remember the wild donkey of a man, the Ishmaelites? And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. Verse 41, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother. <clears throat> So you can see where the seeds of grudge, where the seeds of hatred, where the seeds of wanting to plot to kill your brother, your family, where those take place. Now, I do have to let you know, because this isn't part of our, our study, but moving forward to Genesis 33, 4, we see that Esau actually has a change of heart in a beautiful story of, 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 of mercy and grace Esau actually forgives. He forgives his brother um, 20 years later. It, it, it's really awesome. And that's really the secret to this whole conflict of Israel and Palestine today is they need to forgive. Unfortunately, uh, they won't. They won't forgive. And so as we move on into Genesis chapter 28, uh, we see a, a, another new turn, 28 verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. So Jacob has spoken to Esau and given him this curse. And now he's speaking to Isaac and, and, and um, or Isaac is, is, you know, called upon Jacob. And now he's laying out for him this, this blessing. And part of what he tells him is, look, don't take any daughters from Canaan. Okay. Arise, go to Padamaran to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now, now 
just just keep in mind again, just to to repeat, this is not a, a, a racist issue. This is a spiritual issue, right? God God is specifically told the Israelites to not intermarry, and so what we see here is Isaac, you know, trying to to complete that uh, and be obedient and telling his son. Jacob to not intermarry with the Canaanites. Why? Because the Canaanites believe in different gods. The Canaanites will turn their their children's heads and hearts away from Yahweh, away from the Almighty. And so that's why this is taking place. Verse 6, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaran to make himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. So Esau sees that he's not supposed to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, verse 7, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padamaran. So, verse 8, so Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, and so Esau went to Ishmael. Now, this, this is interesting. Esau goes to Uncle Ishmael um, and marries, besides the wives he already had, he marries uh, Mahalalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So we see here now that there's a not only the, the uncle-nephew connection between Esau and Ishmael, but, but, but they're going to tie the knot here. They're going to seal this bond and allegiance through marriage. And so this is the connection. This is the, the direct line connection in in this historical narrative of of the arabs of the uh, the edomites and the ishmaelites verse 10 then jacob departed from beersheba and went to uh, uh, haran and he came to a certain place in the spring of the night there because the sun had set he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place and so it is done right we see the blessings are given out we see the moving forward of Esau, and now he is completely aligned with the Ishmaelites. In Genesis 36, we'll see really a kind of a complete outline of Esau's family tree, and 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 not only Esau's family tree, but surrounding uh, nations that that are around where Esau and the Edomites are going to settle. They're going to settle in the south. So Esau is going to have five sons. He's going to have 14 chiefs, 11 cities. And again, he is going to flourish. He's going to be a big nation. He's just not the nation of promise. Just not the nation of promise. And so from this point forward, we're constantly going to see a mixing together of not only the Edomites and the Ishmaelites, but also the surrounding nations in, in, in the, the Middle East, in the Arab culture that is going to press forward for the future. Our third point is, our third point in understanding the history uh, of the Israel and Palestinian conflict and, and our overview of, of, of Ishmael, the sons of Ishmael, are the Palestinians and the Ishmaelites. The Palestinians and the Ishmaelites. Uh, the mixing. And so let, let's reset real quick. Let, let's take a step back. Just keep, keep, keep this all sorted out. Genesis 11, 31, Abraham 
is called from Ur to Canaan. There are already people living in Canaan, right? Fact, true. Genesis 19, we see Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 24, uh, that Isaac is told not to take uh, a wife from the Canaanites. We just read that. We also see Isaac uh, is, is reminded of, of the covenant um, with the Abrahamic covenant and that they're not to intermarry with the Philistines, right? In Exodus chapter 2, we see a great reset. And what's that reset? We see the 70 people, 70 people who were in the Abrahamic uh, family. 70 people are leave and go into to Egypt because of the famine. And they're taken into bondage for 400 years of bondage. But this turns into a blessing. This 400 years of slavery is actually a blessing because they don't have an opportunity to intermingle with the foreign countries around them. They don't have an opportunity to worship foreign idols. And so for 400 years, the Israelites, what do they do? They have families. They have babies. In fact, when they leave Egypt, they know exactly from what tribe they belong to. Uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing when, when you really think about it. And so when they come out and in Deuteronomy 7, when they're told to not be unequally yoked, that really shouldn't be a problem since they all know their family trees, their family lines. They know exactly uh, who they are, where they came from. And now instead of 70 people, they have about approximately 2 million people who've come out of the promised land. And so when they come out of the promised land and they're told again uh, by God, look, I am a, a, a promise keeper. I keep my covenants. And what has God promised Israel? Well, let's turn to Joshua 1. Joshua 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses that the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Why is this important? It's important because there's going to be resets in the region of the Middle East over time. Remember the Bible's history. This is a historical account. Okay, yes, the Israelites were relocated from Israel to Egypt but now they're coming back and they come back by the authority of God's word. They come back by the, the declaration, the proclamation of God Almighty himself. Verse 2 of Joshua 1, to the land which I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your feet treads, I have given it to you. So why does it, Israel have a claim? Because God said. Verse 4, from the wilderness, here are the here are the. Uh, the surveying outline from this wilderness of, of this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sea will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Remember, God swore, God promised. Only be strong, be very courageous, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have success 
wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So so here's the the layout. Here's the guideline to success that God has given to Israelites. He's given them land. But the problem is sin. The problem is that Israel is a sinful people, a sinful nation, a sinful, sinful con- uh, country. And so we're going to see the discipline of a loving father. How does that discipline look like? Well, we see an example of that in the book of Judges. Specifically, Judges 2.16 really gives kind of an overview of the entire book of Judges because this is going to be kind of how God handles the cycle of sin, how God judges the cycle of sin, how God disciplines his people. Why? To bring them back to to in a covenant relationship. Uh, judges 2.16. Then the Lord raised up judges. Why? Who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So God will use foreign countries, use foreign enemies to punish Israel. God will allow foreign nations to punish Israel. But then God will raise up judges. Verse 17, and yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down before them. They turned aside quickly from uh, the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. So remember, they're, they're given commands in Deuteronomy 7. They're repeated instructions in Joshua 1 to only do and obey the commandments. But the Israelites don't do it. They're influenced by other nations. So Judges 2.18, And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. God has mercy. God has mercy on Israel. God has and will always have mercy on Israel. Verse 19, but it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, and they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded to their fathers, and have not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in their, as their fathers did or did not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What we're seeing here is a great outline of what the history of Israel was and what it is. This is Israel's history. Is they are in constant rebellion against God. And individually, we don't want to be that. Yes, God has has pity. Yes, God has mercy. Uh, yes, God uh, is loving and kind. But look, if you're stubborn and if you practice um, and abandon God, his anger will burn against you just like it does against the Israelites. The Bible goes on in, in First and Second Samuel, First and Second King, First and Second Chronicles, to, to just show this constant struggle that Israel is going to have historically with the nations around them. Why? 
because of their rebellion and how God uses foreign countries to actually judge and discipline Israel. As, as we push forward and, and go into the New Testament, uh, as, as we jump on our, you know, our, our time machine and go forward, what you see in the New Testament, what you're seeing in Matthew, is now a new occupation, a new enemy. And that enemy is the, the nation of Rome, the Roman Empire. And, and, and the Roman Empire is in complete control of the area of, of Israel, known as the Holy Land, known as Judea in, in, or Judah. And it's Rome who first kind of changes the name of the area to something that is more, um, more, uh, you know, understandable to us today or recognizable, I should say. And so Rome first started using the area of the Holy Land or Judea and calling it Palestine. Why? Well, really to irk the Jews because, you know, the Philistines were always their their enemies, and so they, they changed the name to Palestine. It's, there's a relationship there in the name. Um, and so this area, this territory of Judea or Israel, is also going to be known, uh, especially by the, the secular states, as Palestine. Now, very, very important for us to understand here. There has never, ever, never been a nation, never a state of Palestine. Okay, we we just flew through thousands of years of history in my in my reading of of Genesis and and uh, Joshua and Judges and overview of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and and now in the New Testament. At no time in the history of the Middle East has the Palestinians had a nation. Now they're a tribe, they're a people, no doubt, um, and just as proud and just as. Um, Look, they, they know who they are. It's just like uh, Indian tribes in America. You know if you're Apache, right? You're, you're from the Apache tribe. But they don't call themselves New Mexicans or Arizonans. No, and, and they've never owned the state of Arizona or, or had a, a true uh, national or, or recognized state and, you know, known as Apache land. Well, that's true with the Palestinians, and that's important because, again, from a Palestinian perspective, that's going to feel rough. They're going to say, well, but we've been there. We've been there for, you know, a long time. True, true, true. But you've never been a nation. Uh, at this stage of the game in the New Testament, Rome is in, in charge of, of Israel. Rome is the occupier. Well, in AD 610, things have changed about 600 years later. And the history of the Arabs and the history of Islam is now taking fold. In 1610, Muhammad has a new vision. And re remember what the, the Bible says about new visions and what the Bible says in Galatians 1 about even if an angel comes and gives you a different gospel, uh, you should reject it. Well, Ish, um, Muhammad claims a new vision. And what's his new vision? This is why we need to know our Bible. And this is why we need to know our history. His new vision is that Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham. And so he should be the chosen one. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac. And so he should be the chosen one. And so the claim of Muhammad and the claim of Islam is that the true uh, descendants of blessing, the true uh, descendants of honor should be that of Ishmael and Esau, and that's the identity that the Muslims have under the religion of Islam.
And so in 1020, we see the Dome of the Rock. The, the mosque is built on the site where the temple of, 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 of you know, the, the you know, Solomon's temple, David's temple. We see the Dome of the Rock is placed there by uh, Muhammad, by the, 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 you know, Muslims in the area. Well, this is going to be a major transition because now the area is going to be uh, infiltrated, is going to, is populated not only by Arabs, not only by Jews, but also now through this new kind of uh, Muslim unification. Well, real quick, and we'll talk about this next time too, but real quick in this history of Palestinians, and, and we can see now the tie into the Palestinians and the Arabs, the connection with the, the Arabs and Ishmaelites and, and Edomites. But this area is, is and had become very, very strategic around the time of the turn of the century of World War I, right? Why? Because the region of the world has the Suez Canal, right, that connected uh, the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. It really kind of connects the world. But also this new thing called oil starts to emerge. Um, and oil is, is going to really give that region wealth and it's going to give them attention. Um, but what takes place in World War One, you know, about, to, you know, in, in World War One, the Ottoman Empire is, is a massive empire. They're a, a Turkish Muslim empire that is, is, is <clears throat> occupying the area of Israel at this time. But at the end of World War I, uh, they lose the war. And so uh, Britain, Great Britain, is given control of the territory, the Palestinian territory, the, the, the area of Israel under the League of Nations. So how does, is, how does, excuse me, how does Britain get the land of Israel? Through war, through treaty, the League of Nations give it to them. Well, World War II comes around, and what happens in World War II? Well, we see that there's the the Jewish persecution. We see the Holocaust, and what we see now is at the end of World War II a displacement throughout the the um, Europe of about fifty million Jews. Okay, and so they need a place to go. And Great Britain and the U.S. get together and they say, hey, why don't you turn over this land to the, the Jews? They go to the, the you know, League of Nations or the United Nations and they create a new deal. Now, you, you have to understand that after a world war, when the entire world um, goes to, to war and all the mapping of of Europe is remapped and the remapping of the islands in the Pacific Ocean are remapped because of war. How do you stop war? With treaty. And so the treaty, part of the treaty is that this land of Israel, uh, this land that everybody's fighting over, is going to be turned over to Israel. Now at the time, 80% of the people living in this territory are Palestinian and 20% Jewish. Okay, so you can understand that there's going to be a, a, a 300,000 uh, person displacement of Palestinians having to move from where they were in, let's say, Israel proper to now these two other areas. They weren't completely kicked out. They weren't completely not given any land. They were sent to what's called the West Bank, and they were also sent to the Gaza Strip. And to this day, 
those are, are, are kind of the, the two uh, in the two state proposition of Israel. You've got Israel and then you've got the West Bank and you've got Gaza. And, and so what you have is is the people of the Palestinians, the people of the Arabs, the people of the Jews, the the you know Jewish people, Israeli people, the Muslims, they've all been in the area of of Israel since the beginning, right? God did not drive them out uh, for Joshua. We saw that in Scripture, um, and so this is the formation. But in 1948, when the UN resolution began in 1947, gives the land to Israel. That's kind of the deal. That's it, right? That's how we get land. We get land, either God gives it to you, you settle brand new land, you buy land, you take over land for more, or you get um, land from treaties. And quite often you get land from treaties because of war. Well, that's how Israel was able to get their land. Well, the next day that the UN ratifies that, guess what happens? The Arab nations surrounding Israel go to war. They go to war. You know, you're talking about like Jordan. You're talking about Iran, Iraq, Egypt. I mean, these are powerful, big, powerful nations with armies go to war against Israel because they don't agree with the UN. But Israel wins. So a year later, Israel is in earnest by treaty and by war. It's their land. Well, in 1967, there's this thing called the Six-Day War. And in the Six-Day War, again, the, the, the same characters from surrounding Arab Muslim nations attack Israel, and Israel wins again. Now, something happens in 1967. Well, because of the attack, and this is what happens in war, when your enemies attack you, sometimes you take land back. And so Israel retained Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank because of the 1967 war. In 1973, there's another war called the Yom Kippur one, and Israel wins again. So, so at this stage, whenever there's a war, Israel wins. So there really shouldn't be any argument as to why Israel has the land. They won it by war, and they've won it by the UN. But then throughout time, they've also had other peace treaties, the Oslo Accords, the Abrahamic Accords. We see that uh, th this organization called the PLO, the Palestinian uh, you know, liberation organization, you saw that uh, in the 2000s. And that's when the age of terrorism began. And so because they couldn't defeat Israel with war, they started with their terrorist attacks and, you know, bombings and, and, and suicide, you know, deaths. And, and this other terrorist organization started a rise called Hamas. I mentioned earlier that the Palestinians actually voted Hamas as their political leadership. And since they voted Hamas as their political leaders, Hamas has never relinquished control. And so that's where we're at. Where we're at today is because of terrorism, because of Hamas, because of, of Hezbollah. There are a lot of enemies that are in this area uh, of Israel in this area of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, something very interesting happened in 2005. Israel actually turned the Gaza Strip back over to the Palestinians. Why? Why? For peace. And so what we see here in this brief little history, and we'll talk more about it, is 
we see that Israel does, at least from an outsider's view, attempt to have peace talks, attempt to have peace treaties, and and attempt to give up some of their land. Now, now the Arabs and the and the Palestinians never want to give an inch of their land. In fact, as I mentioned before, their uh, their battle cry or their motto or their their brand, their slogan is from the river to the sea. And see, this is the problem. The problem that we're having here in this battle and, and understanding of Israel and the Palestinian conflict is this. We have to understand that this started all the way back in the beginning. It started with Ishmael not getting the promise and the blessing. It continued with Esau not giving, getting the promise and the blessing. It continues because of the the Abrahamic covenant promise to Israel that they do get the land, they do get the blessing. And so over time and over history, nothing has changed for the battle of this land. And and then with the uh, advent of a new religion made up by uh, an Arab named Muhammad, also known as Islam, now we have a not only a political issue, we also have a religious issue, which, as I stated in the beginning, it's always been a religious issue because it's always been Satan against God. Satan against God. And so, look, what side are we on? Well, we're on the side of the Bible. We're on the side of, of God. And as I just stated, God gave the land to Israel. We're on the side of rule and order, or, you know, law. And the United Nations has not only given the land to Israel, but upheld that year after year, starting in 1948. It's been a long time, people. Uh, we're, we're, we're not for, but we understand the law of the jungle. The law of the jungle is you win war, you, you win the spoils, and Israel has, has won the wars. Uh, look, we're not on the side of, of, of genocide. We're not on the side of wiping out people. In fact, we see, uh, you know, in our side judgment here, that Israel has always allowed Arabs, always allowed Palestinians within their state. Heck, right now you can go in their politics and they have Arabs in their politics. So uh, really doesn't make any sense to assume that it's Israel who wants to commit the genocide. In fact, it's the other side that's singing from the river to the sea. Uh, look, we're not on the side of any kind of terrorist um, organizations. We're, we're, we're not on the side of, of real racism that again turns into genocide. Let's be clear. We're on the side of of Christianity. We're on the side of conversion. And, and what we want to see in this region is, is we want to see Christ proclaimed. But what we know, what we understand is that God is chosen. God is chosen. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And we'll talk about that. And Satan is going to fight forever all the way to the end. So so this will never end. And there's no news reporter, there's no country in the world who's going to understand this conflict if they don't understand the Bible, if they don't understand um, what, what God has sovereignly ordained. We know that Satan will always, always, always attempt to eliminate the Jews. And we know that there's a blessing for those who align themselves with God's people. And so as we continue our study Again, we want to be clear that we don't want to get caught up 
and the political argument, but we want to understand the spiritual.